Hello and welcome to Metaphors of EdTech, a podcast by me, Martin Weller. In this podcast, I talk about metaphors of educational technology. There's an accompanying book published by Athabasca University Press, which you can check out. It's free to download or you can buy the print copy. And in each episode notes, I'll put links to interesting articles or things that are relevant. So check those out. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to a sub-series of Metaphors of EdTech, uh, where we revisit my previous book, 25 Years of EdTech, and I'm now updating it to 30 Years of EdTech. Previously, uh, when the book originally came out in 2018, a colleague, Clint Lalonde, uh, decided to set up a community project turn it into an audio book with a different person reading each chapter. You can see that over 25years.opened.ca. And Laura Pasquini set up a podcast called Between the Chapters with guests talking about that chapter each week. So I recommend visiting that. What I plan to do here is to republish the audiobook version with a preface from me, thinking about kind of how things have changed and whether I was still happy with that chapter and what's moved on since then, plus the extra five years uh, that takes us up to now. Welcome to another episode of 30 Years of EdTech. It's 2005 now and we're talking about video. Uh, the audio book chapter is read by Chad Flynn and that follows after this and the Between the Chapters podcast has uh, Laura Pasquini's host as usual and Lee Skiller up set uh, talking. So uh, video, yes. I think one of the things I got when I was going through this chapter, which I think still rang true, was the that initial optimism we had around it and I sort of I pull out some of the cultural differences that people point to. Um, which also sort of downplay some of the things that we came to see. I think that's become even more to the fore. So I do mention these later on in a different chapter in the book, but things such as you know, misinformation spreading through um, things like YouTube and the very kind of aggressive algorithms for kind of pushing similar content to you. And we've seen the kind of how damaging that can be in society and the whole just notion of truth, you know, um, we've seen particularly in, in the US, for instance. Um, but I still think there's something really fascinating around video and, and the sort of creativity it unleashed. Uh, so in the podcast, Lee talks about, you know, her children just watch things like the unboxing videos or playthroughs of video games. Like, who would have predicted that those things would be really popular and, and fascinating for children? If you'd said we're going to make content, everyone can make content, we would have predicted like comedy sketches or something, you know, or, you know, or practical how-to guides. You, know, you can see those things, but the uh, unboxing but these things have really taken off. And I love that kind of like unpredictability about the whole thing. One thing that I don't really talk about in the chapter, because uh, it wasn't that big then that was around, uh, is you know, uh, TikTok, I think in particular, um, and, and similar platforms. We've, we've seen this rise of really powerful influencers, you know, perhaps uh, to use the horrible gen phrases, you know, particularly around kind of Gen Z, I think, you know, that's kind of, that's where a lot of people go for that kind of content where they, get a lot of their political information from or where they get their reviews of books or films from you know um and it was interesting during the pandemic that people really took to using tiktok as a way to spread proper information about covid and things but also i think it's, it's true to say that a lot of misinformation was spread through that as well so i think but also seeing that as a very important channel to reach certain people when you needed to was was a real switch i think for lots of things one of the things i've sort of noticed is this obsession around everything pivoting to video so you know i use instagram it was a very good photo sharing platform we get the from that are they kind of feel that photo sharing is kind of beneath them in a way, and they want to be a video sharing platform they want to be tiktok 
can see Facebook has moved over to trying to get people to share lots of videos. Lots of news outlets sort of try to do this pivot to video. And I don't think it's always successful. I think, and we see with um, the impact of, of podcasts that people like audio only for particular circumstances. And I think that, you know, people continue to want to read things like through Substack and those kind of newsletters. I think so. That there's a kind of a pushback against this ubiquity of video, that video is sort of sits atop the kind of pyramid of, of media formats in a way. I think uh, video is obviously an interesting thing to look uh, in, in light of the pandemic and both uh, Laura and Lee sort of talk about the um, the importance of being able to do asynchronous, the importance of being able to do synchronous video came where we could, we sort of could really only do asynchronous effectively up until a certain time. And then the bandwidth came along that we could really, nearly most people could function with synchronous video. And we see that with, you know, just on your phones and things. So when the pandemic hit, this meant the online lecture was really feasible. You could assume that most people could access it and you could do a live lecture just as you could do a normal one. And that's, so that kind of became the model that people switched to. Um, and people could also do online group work and all those kind of things. Um, and I think Lee makes a really good point. She's like, it's what this really has done is set, video has allowed us to have a kind of crutch to kind of recreate face-to-face -face online, even if that's not the appropriate way to operate online. Um, and so there's, and I think I've blogged about quite a few times, there's this kind of lack of imagination around what else you can do with online learning. It's just, we just default to, this, to the lecture mode all the time. The lecture has become a, a kind of dominant metaphor for how you do online education. And it's not the only way to work. In, in a strange way, um, so I work at the Open University. We've always operated largely on an asynchronous mode of, of study. And being able to do synchronous stuff was for us, you know, a, a bit of a revolution. And we've tried to build that in. But in some ways, I think the, the asynchronous mode is itself quite radical and not enough people really embrace it they just always go for the kind of um, synchronous mode and because we can do that now because technology allows it it's like we don't need to think any further i think other aspects of video include lecture capture and that's been a really interesting development as that's become more of the norm and particularly became the norm through uh, the pandemic we've seen reports of these kind of empty lecture halls where you know, lecturers are turning up and there's not a single student there because students will say i'll catch up online later uh, and often that's because we're still thinking all of our students are 18 to 22 year olds with no other commitments who uh, don't need to do anything else and live on campus. Whereas often they have other commitments, jobs, they live far away, they need to get to campus. If you've got one hour lecture, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe, you know, It's probably better to be there, but probably not worth it if you know, get enough from the, the catch up online. But also students can do online group work, online seminars. And so I think the perhaps the one of the benefits, or at least one of the big challenges we've seen come out of the rise of video is that it's really challenged the face-to-face -face dominance, both in terms of how we deliver education, but also how we work as well. So like, do we need to all go to campus every day now? And, you know, I'm, I work at the Open University, I've said, so, but since the pandemic, I've been on campus about five times. And we used to go up to have meetings. We used to go to campus to have meetings, but I live quite far away from campus. So it was a it was a long haul, but, like, but now everyone's got used to having online meetings. That's become the norm, the kind of default mode that actually becomes an effort to go into campus. And sometimes it's worth having those things. I'm not saying you don't need to have them, but I think we're really sort of working around that whole idea of what's virtual working, what's hybrid working. And that might be the biggest impact we've seen of, um, of video in education itself. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the audio chat, which follows now.
Welcome to 25 Years of Ed Tech, the serialized audio version of the book, 25 Years of Ed Tech, written by Martin Weller and published by Athabasca University Press. This community-produced audio version of the book is narrated by a global cast of educators with a new chapter released each week. In addition to the book, there is also an accompanying podcast called Between the Chapters, which contains analysis and discussion of each chapter of the book. For more information on the audio version of the book and the accompanying podcast, or to subscribe, visit 25years.opened.ca. Chapter 12, 2005, Video, as read by Chad Flynn. YouTube was founded in 2005, which already seems surprisingly recent. So much has it become part of the cultural landscape. Former PayPal employees Jawid Karim, Steve Chen, and Chad Hurley realized there was no single place for video sharing and set up YouTube with venture capital funding. In just over a year, it was acquired by Google, primarily to aid its search data. As internet access began to improve and compression techniques along with it, the viability of streaming video reached a realistic point for many by 2005. YouTube and other video sharing services flourished, and the realization that you could make your own video and share it easily with others was the next step in the democratization of broadcast that had begun with the web. It transpired that people really wanted to share video. While we take it for granted now, these YouTube statistics, Omnicore 2018, dwarf most conventional broadcasters. Statistic 1. Total number of monthly active YouTube users, 1.9 billion. Statistic 2. Total number of daily active YouTube users, 30 plus million. Statistic 3. Number of videos shared to date, 5 plus billion. Statistic 4. Number of users creating content shared to date, 50 million. Statistic 5. Average viewing session, 40 minutes up 50% year over year. Statistic six, number of videos watched per day, five billion. YouTube demographics. Demographic one, 62% of YouTube users are male. Demographic two, 80% of YouTube users come from outside the US. Demographic three, millennials prefer YouTube two to one over traditional television. Perhaps the most interesting statistic in that list is the 50 million users creating content. Many of these are existing companies, such as the BBC, but that also represents a large number of content creators who are suddenly given a platform. While many of the videos created are low quality and of interest only to a handful of people, the format also released a wave of creativity and saw the rise in YouTube celebrities and millionaires. Perhaps more than any other site, YouTube came to define the idea of the, quote, participatory culture, unquote. Jenkins, Purushatma, Vigal, Clinton, and Robinson 2009, defined participatory culture as one where, one, there are relatively low barriers to artistic expression and civic engagement, two, there is strong support for creating and sharing what you create with others, three, there is some kind of informal mentorship whereby what is known by most experienced gets passed along to newbies and novices, four, members feel that their contributions matter, five, Members feel some degree of social connection with each other, at least to the degree which they care about what other people think about what they have created. This is relevant to education because the authors contend that the type of informal learning spaces people participate in on sites such as YouTube contrast with formal education in several ways. They posit the following differences in culture. Formal education is conservative, while informal learning is experimental. 
Formal education is static, while informal learning is innovative. Formal education is institutional structures. Informal learning is provisional structures. Formal education is long-term changes. Informal learning respond to short-term needs. Formal education is national, bureaucratic communities. Informal learning is ad hoc and localized communities. Formal education is difficult to move in and get out of. Informal learning is easy to move between. This list reflects some of the optimism around new cultures prevalent at the time and is akin to much of the now discredited digital natives narrative in its sweeping generalizations. It also rather over-romanticizes the participatory culture and glosses over some of the issues that have been apparent, which we will explore in Chapter 25. Nevertheless, it does highlight different types of cultural values, much like those mentioned in Chapter 10 on blogging. If blogging raised those cultural tensions for educators, then video raised them for learners. Even if we accept the generalizations in this list, it raises several questions. To what extent does this matter? Should universities attempt to be more like a participatory culture, or should they be an antidote to it? The answer for Jenkins and all, 2009, is that the development of digital literacies act as a bridge between the two cultures. Embedding digital literacies, such as the evaluation of information sources, communication, and production of digital artifacts, are a core component in much of education now. For example, the Welsh Digital Competence Framework, Learning Wales 2018, raises this to a cross-curricular level, alongside numeracy and literacy. The use of video within higher education has seen a substantial increase since 2005, particularly with the ease of embedding videos from sites such as YouTube. Before this, video was usually bespoke, commissioned, or purchased, and was often prohibitively expensive. What accompanied and reinforced the online video sharing revolution was a drastic reduction in the cost of production. It had become possible to produce a good quality video using mobile phones, and indeed some cinematic releases, such as Steven Soderbergh's Unsane, were filmed entirely on iPhones. Prior to the advent of smartphones, small, inexpensive digital video cameras, such as the flip camera, and webcams meant video production became democratized, and as such, its position in education content was altered. This ease of production, combined with the availability of abundant, easily discoverable, and reusable video content on YouTube, meant that producing a multimedia course was within reach of any educator. As we saw with learning objects, it was the success of the simple video explanations of key concepts that could be shared and embedded, such as those from the Khan Academy, which realized some of the original vision of reusable content. One development that has seen an increased interest in the use of video is the flipped learning concept. This emerged from K-12 education, particularly in the U.S., where the flipped learning network has promoted it as a model for teaching. The idea is to use the face-to-face classroom setting for more interactive, group-based work and discussion while individual time at home is spent on learning concepts. This individual element is often realized through the provision of video. It has attracted criticism because it shifts the workload of learning to the home. So it requires a home environment where students are equipped with connected computers and they must focus on watching videos and taking notes rather than reading books or writing essays. This privileges children who have stable home lives. In higher education, this may not be as strong a factor since independent study always forms part of the study experience. However, there is a debate as to whether this is an effective use of time. Reese, 2014, went as far as to call it quote-unquote depraved, stating, quote, you may be thinking that you're teaching more efficiently, 
but what you're really doing is putting the onus of learning entirely on the student, unquote. In a review of the use of flipped learning in higher education, O'Flaherty and Phillips, 2015, found mixed results, including a number of positive student learning outcomes, a strong willingness for academics to engage in the flipped classroom, particularly for large first-year foundational STEM courses, and positive responses from students. However, they also reported that it required considerable time investment from educators, that in some subjects it was not popular with students, and that there were very few studies containing robust evidence demonstrating that flipped learning was more effective than conventional teaching methods. Similarly, London, Reinsfeld, Hillman, Lance Anderson, and Peterson, 2018, reviewed the literature and concluded that, quote, it is difficult to identify when, under what circumstances, and in what ways the flipped classroom approach might be relevant as a pedagogical choice, unquote. Like many approaches that acquire a catchy name, this can be both a blessing and a curse. Rethinking effective use of classroom time in a digital networked world and the effective use of abundant resources, especially video, would seem to be a desirable pursuit in higher education. But following a prescriptive approach, or failing to accommodate for the increased load on students and educators, can be a result of pursuing an educational trend. While the use of video in class, lecture, or course is common, Morin, Seaman, and Tinty Kane, 2011, its use as an assessment format is still relatively limited. In some disciplines, such as the arts, it is more common, but in 2019, it is still the case that text is the dominant communication form in education. New innovations in this area include courses like Digital Storytelling, or DS-106, that are encouraging students to develop skills in creating GIFs and video in a range of inventive assignments. But many students will go through their education without being required to produce a video as a form of assessment, and we have not yet fully developed critical structures for this medium that are commonly accepted as they are for text. The use of student-generated video can lead to more engagement, increased personal involvement, and satisfaction. Green and Crespi, 2012. There is concern about students possessing the right skills, but with ease of production, this is less of an issue. Perhaps the issue is more that educators know what a good essay looks like and how to assess it, but are less sure as to what constitutes a good video. Using student vloggers, video bloggers, to construct an image of campus life has been utilized by De Montfort University, DMU, 2018, and Queensland University of Technology, Delaney, Menzies, and Nelson, 2012, with successful results, but such projects are not linked directly to assessment. For academics, the ability to be a broadcaster has significant appeal. This has inevitably led to a wealth of overlong talking head video productions, which are rarely exciting, but nevertheless the cliché of, quote, we are all broadcasters now, unquote, became true. It would take some time for the implications of this shift to become apparent in terms of misinformation, trolls, and privacy, but the initial realization of this newfound ability was appealing. Researchers could now produce short, attractive video content to accompany a paper and thereby reach different audiences. It is also the case that the conference experience has been transformed by the ability to live stream easily to amplify an event so that it is possible to remotely participate, particularly in conjunction with Twitter discussions. While the creation of video is still done poorly more often than it is done well, and the comment section of YouTube is not a place to go for informed debate, it is the case that video has become a valuable additional tool for educators, learners, and researchers since its democratization in 2005. 
Thank you for listening to 25 Years of EdTech, the serialized audiobook version of Martin Weller's 25 Years of EdTech, published by Athabasca University Press and narrated by a global cast of volunteers. Intro music for the podcast is Abstract Corporate by Grip Sound and released under a Creative Commons attribution license. To subscribe to the weekly audio series and the accompanying podcast between the chapters, visit 25years.opened.ca. Thanks for listening to Metaphors of EdTech. Remember to subscribe if this is your bag. Uh, and also check the episode notes for any useful links and fun things there. Bye.